and thank you for listening to the History of World War II podcast, Episode 219, When Diplomacy Fails. Last time, as Tokyo and Washington continued to go round and round in the summer of 1941, in the forms of Ambassador Nomura and President Roosevelt, or Secretary of State Hull, progress of any kind was not the result. Indeed, in July, Japan pushed further into southern French Indochina to the consternation of Washington, which left the Japanese shocked by the Americans' reactions. Whereas FDR not only froze all Japanese assets within the country, money badly needed to buy American oil and gas, but he also made the entire process more cumbersome for Tokyo, and gave himself the option of stopping such sales at any time. But this was just an economic slap across the face, compared to what came next. The woefully inadequate Philippine army was nationalized into the service of the United States. Then the War Department set up a new Far Eastern Command, and General Douglas MacArthur was brought out of retirement and made ranking officer of this new command, to which Tokyo could only assume that major resources would now be flowing into the island nation just southwest of the Japanese home islands. But then it was Japan's turn to overreact. On July 30th, as the Japanese had sent their naval planes to bomb Chongqing, Chiang Kai-shek's relatively new capital. One bomber peeled off of the formation and went after the U.S. gunboat Tatula, itself anchored next to the American embassy. Though the vessel was damaged, no lives were lost. This near catastrophe calmed most heads on both sides momentarily. Tokyo apologized, and the Americans accepted. And yet, this lone incident would have far-reaching consequences. Tokyo figured out pretty quickly that this acquiescence to American anger would not please Hitler, whose forces were currently driving towards Moscow, as it was the United States who had just added the Soviet Union to its Lend-Lease program. An explanation, if not a justification, was in order. Tokyo's foreign office wrote to Berlin that we must immediately take steps to break this ever-strengthening chain of encirclement under the guidance of England and the United States, like a cunning dragon seemingly asleep. I know the Germans are somewhat dissatisfied over our negotiations with the U.S., but we wish to prevent the United States from getting into the war. Tokyo, like Berlin, could easily picture the end result if Japan and the United States came to blows, as the former had a military agreement with Nazi Germany. However, the United States picked up the signal through magic, and soon a translation of this missive was on Cordell Hull's desk. His response? He was resigned that war with Japan was only a matter of time. He wrote that we have reached the end of any possible appeasement with Japan, and that there is nothing further that can be done with that country except a firm policy and force itself. Prime Minister Kanoye felt the same way. It was only a matter of time. But that countdown would be dominated, at least for the Japanese, on their current supply of oil. As things stood, the military had about four months to come up with a war strategy. And yet FDR offered up an idea that went counter 
to what Hull had just written. Was China really worth going to war with Japan? Maybe it was time to cut their losses. But this possibility was screamed down by Secretary of Treasury Morgenthau, Secretary of the Interior Ickes, and Secretary of War Stimson, not to mention Churchill and Chiang Kai-shek. But the last two can be forgiven for their piercing responses. FDR countered this chorus of vitriol by stating that it was the status quo, after all, which was best serving the two Western powers. Germany was tied down in Russia, Japan in China, which gave Washington and London what they needed most, time, time to build up their armed forces. Meanwhile, Yamamoto's Operation Z, his attack plan on Pearl Harbor, still wasn't passing muster with the Naval General Staff. Chief Tomioka listed its shortcomings. How was a massive Japanese naval force to sail across the Pacific undetected? What if the enemy's carriers and battleships weren't in port when they arrived? What about Pearl's shallow harbor? What about the still untested feat of refueling at sea? What about the weather? Tomioka's conclusion? This operation had little chance of success. In the worst case, we may even lose our forces. But Yamamoto and those on his side did not give up, and collectively they had enough clout to move up the Navy's annual war games to September and include a detailed analysis of Operation Z. This left Prime Minister Kanoye trapped between the aggressive Americans and the Japanese military, which had the power to bring down his government. No, if peace was to be maintained, he had to meet personally with the American president. Now, there was no way War Minister General Hideki Tojo would allow this meeting to go forward, but Kanoye had already figured out a way around the razor. He called upon General Higashi Kuni, the emperor's uncle, and had him break the news to Tojo. The general opened up the talk with a speech. He stated that if things continued the way they were, war would result between the two countries, and with the Americans' larger population and industry, Japan would lose. But Tojo countered, if nothing was done to alter their current course, Japan would lose itself as a nation and be forced out of China, maybe even Manchukuo. However, if war did come, at least Japan had a 50-50 chance. Those were better odds. Still, the man was talking to the emperor's uncle, who would have no trouble gaining an audience with Hirohito. So Tojo acquiesced, but he warned Kanoye, You shall not resign your post as a result of the meeting on the grounds that it was a failure. Rather, you shall be prepared to assume leadership in a war against America. Kanoye, it seemed, was still between a rock and a hard place, but at least he had a chance. However, predating the sign Truman would keep on his desk that read, The buck stops here, Prime Minister Kanoye would find that he was carrying the weight of Japan's war crimes in China. Roosevelt, Hull, nor Stimson would put much stock in the Prime Minister's earnest pleas for peace. The last two told their president that 
the invitation is merely a blind to try to keep us from taking definite action. Besides, Washington knew that the civilian government could not promise anything that couldn't be backed up by the military, and Magic had already shown the Americans their true intentions. FDR manifested this frustration by telling Nomura on August 17th, I am happy to meet with the Prime Minister, if peace is possible. But if Japan kept trying to negotiate non-aggression pacts with the United States, while at the same time invading Asia, we could not think of reopening the conversations. Nomura countered that Kanoye was sincere, and he would meet with Secretary Hall to set up the meeting. But everyone involved knew that Japanese forces would not be leaving China, much less the recently invaded southern Indochina. Just ten days later, on August 27th, the Japanese Total War Research Institute presented a nine-hour report to Prime Minister Kanoye. In summation, if Japan attacked Western territories in Asia, they would start out well enough. But unless the U.S. could be forced to give up, a prolonged war would benefit them. It was asked of the Institute members, what if Japan grabbed up the oil resources of Southeast Asia? The reply was, this would change nothing. Ships laden with oil supplies would be sunk, at least enough of them, before reaching the home islands that any benefit was non-existent. The result? The same. Defeat. To which Colonel Hariba Kazu, the Institute's instructor, enjoined, you are forgetting the most crucial ingredient, the Japanese spirit of Yamato Damashi, discipline, hard work, and resilience. This alone would guarantee victory. Which is ironic, coming from a nation that had gained much power over the last seven decades only because it adopted Western industry and technology. In effect, machine guns, tanks, and bombers all overrode personal courage. A similar conversation was taking place at the Imperial Palace a few days later. Navy Chief of Staff Nagano told his emperor that the tripartite pact, which he was against, was holding Japan back from sincerely talking to the Americans. And as a naval man, war with the United States had to be avoided. However, with the current situation thus, their oil would run out completely in two years, 18 months if war came. If Japan was to strike, it should be done as soon as possible. Hirohito asked, could we expect to win? Nagano replied, I am uncertain as to any victory, let alone the kind we had against Russia during the Russo-Japanese War. Hirohito breathed out, what a reckless war that would be. As Tokyo moved closer to war, or rather, it would be more accurate to say, away from peace, Yamamoto's Operation Z was further refined. Captain Minoru Genda brought on board China War Torpedo Ace Mitsuo Fuchida. Fuchida had a strange mixture of blushing easily, but was fearless in battle, drank hard, and physically stood out as he had adopted Hitler's mustache. Fuchida was made commander of the 1st Air Fleet's air groups, which comprised some 400 aircraft, 
transported on or protected by some 31 vessels, when the fleet left for Pearl. The man never stopped experimenting with bombing or torpedo techniques. In time, wooden fins were attached to the torpedoes, which would break off upon impact, but they slowed the fish's dive, which meant it would not go down so deep. Practicing in a harbor similar to Pearl's, over time the pilots were able to send most of their torpedoes into their targets. The shallowness of Pearl had been overcome. As for the torpedo nets, Fuchida found men willing to fly their planes into them, sacrificing themselves. They would proceed the torpedo attacks. As for the high-level bombers, Fuchida's team came up with metal fins for the ordnance. By attaching these to the 1,700-pound shells, they would fall nose first, and by dropping them from 11,000 feet, this would be enough to penetrate the battleship's decks. With practice, their hit rate improved by 70%. Fuchida, like many in the know, felt that it was proper to attack without a declaration of war. If a warrior was not ready to defend his country, he and it deserved what happened to them. More hurdles to Operation Z had been cleared. Hey guys, Ray here. I'm willing to bet my underwear is better than what you're wearing right now. How do I know? Because I'm sporting Mack Weldon. Get away from the game of roulette each time you go to the department stores with their rows of underwear and socks, not knowing which ones are good or if they'll fit. Mack Weldon gives you the same great fit each time. Mack Weldon is better than whatever you're wearing right now. Mack Weldon believes in smart design, premium fabrics, and simple shopping. Mack Weldon will be the most comfortable underwear, socks, shirts, undershirts, hoodies, and sweatpants, and more, than you'll ever wear. They have a line of silver underwear and shirts that are naturally antimicrobial, which means they eliminate odor. And they want you to be comfortable, so if you don't like your first pair, you can keep it, and they will still refund you. No questions asked. Not only does Mack Weldon's underwear, socks, and shirts look great, they perform well, too. It's good for working out, going to work, going out on dates, just everyday life. Now, I got a pair of boxer briefs, a pair of super fine cotton anti-odor silver business smart socks, and a pair of ace relaxed and refined shorts. Those were my favorite. They were soft, fit great, and moved with my body. Whether I'm sitting at my desk or playing with my dog, those shorts looked great, made me look great, and were always comfortable. I wear them all the time now. Their website was so easy to navigate. It had pictures and explanations of everything with size selection assistance. No confusion, no questions left behind. So upgrade your comfort and look by going to MacWeldon.com. And for 20% off your first order, visit MacWeldon.com and enter promo code WORLDWAR at checkout. MacWeldon.com. Get great comfort shipped right to your door and look good doing it. However, before a showdown could begin between Japan and the United States, there first had to be a showdown with the Emperor Hirohito. On September 5th, Kanoye met with the Emperor and told him that war had to be prepared for, in case diplomacy did not work, 
by the first week of October. In truth, the government, i.e. the military in Tokyo, had already decided two days earlier for war. Hirohito replied that he wanted diplomacy to be the first priority, only then conflict. But Kanoye rejoined, that would be impossible. The emperor, mindful of his limitations, asked the military chiefs who had just arrived, how long would it take to clear things up if war came? General Sugiyama said, if limited to the South Seas, I would expect in three months. But Hirohito countered, Sugiyama, you were minister when the China incident broke out. You said that would be cleared up in a month, but it still hasn't been cleared up after four long years, has it? Sugiyama offered the excuse that China was vast, to which the emperor asked, is it the Pacific even more vast? What convinces you to say three months? Sugiyama and Admiral Nagano remained silent. The emperor pressed his supposed advantage. The high command understands that, as of today, the objective is to emphasize diplomacy, correct? The military men agreed, but this was just more to end the meeting. The next day brought another meeting, but as this was an official imperial conference, Hirohito would not speak, letting his privy council, Hara, speak for him. Hara picked up where the emperor had left off the day before. Am I right in believing that everything is being done diplomatically at present to save the situation, and that war will be resorted to only when diplomatic means fail? The civilians said yes, but the men in uniform remained silent. It was then the emperor broke with tradition and opined, It is regrettable that both chiefs of the general staff are unable to answer. This breach of etiquette embarrassed the military men into speaking the truth. Nagano said that Japan would probably win the first series of battles, which would give the empire options. At the moment, doing nothing would guarantee their fall. The meeting had become a contest of wills, and the truth was that the army and navy had already decided their course. Besides, Hirohito was not the man his grandfather, Mutsuhito, the great Meiji, had been. In early September, Konoye secretly met with UN Ambassador Joseph Grew. Why secretly? For one, the Prime Minister did not want the military to know that he was still pursuing a peaceful course. And two, ultra-nationalists were attempting to kill public officials who seemed to be against a war with the West. Groove summed up his meeting to Washington by writing, If a meeting between the Prime Minister and President does not result favorably for Tokyo, then Kanoye's government will fall, which will be replaced by a military one. However, if Kanoye defies the military who seems to want war, then his government will again fall. The writing seemed to be on the wall, but for those in FDR's cabinet, truly accepting this, as in a shooting war, was still unfathomable. During the second week of September, the Japanese Naval Staff College held its war games. The 3rd Fleet attacked Borneo. The 11th Air Fleet pretended to fly from Formosa to hit MacArthur's forces in the Philippines. 
the second fleet would hit China's coast to reach Singapore and push further until Hong Kong was reached. The fourth fleet would take the Gilberts, Guam, and Wake. All this would keep the Americans out of Japanese waters. The last day of the exercise, September 16th, was solely focused on the attack of Pearl Harbor, but its results were far less impressive than the other formations. During the first round, the attacking force lost half its carriers and planes. Round two went better, but the invaders still lost 127 aircraft. It was determined that the greater the element of surprise could be maintained, the less the Japanese lost and the more the Americans would lose. This demanded that the fleet had to reach a spot about 450 miles north of Oahu, just as the sun went down, in order to launch their first air attack just before sunrise the next day. Clearly, more details were needed, so a list of questions was sent to the spy, Takeo Yoshikawa. Magic intercepted this message and translated it for the local U.S. naval officials. However, they did not overreact when told of the Japanese command's request. Why? Well, for one, the U.S. did the same thing to them. Next, if war was declared, and obviously it would be before the shooting started, none of their vessels would be in harbor. But before September was up, Prime Minister Kanoye would find that he was the one who had been outfoxed, or rather, simply run over. On the 25th, the chiefs of staff, Sugiyama and Nagano, met with the Prime Minister and demanded that October 15th was the deadline for all talk of diplomacy to end and for the war to begin. Kanoye tried to sow confusion amongst the military by asking, was the 15th deadline rigid? That's when Minister of War Tojo, the Razor, spoke up and said the military had wanted the deadline to be earlier in October, so the 15th was their compromise. The Prime Minister was trapped, and he knew it. He confided to a friend that it was time for him to resign. But the friend who worked directly for the emperor chided the prime minister, saying, You can't lead us down this road and then resign. The military will find a way to punish you, and their ways are normally final. So Kanoye left the capital and went to a seaside resort some 30 miles from Tokyo. It was a self-exile, but a calculated one. As meandering as the steps were that led to Pearl Harbor being attacked, as October opened up in 1941, that path was about to become three-dimensional. Now that Kanoye was away, Foreign Minister Matsuoka, the man who believed that the tripartite pact would solve all their problems, called on Ambassador Gru. His aim was to push for the Kanoye-Roosevelt meeting but in such a way as to have the United States remove their embargoes as a condition to such a meeting. Matsuoka spoke of all the death and destruction that would come if the two countries should wage war upon the other. But at the same time, he said, as eager as we are for peace, we will not bow under the pressure of another country, nor do we want peace 
at any price. Perhaps the foreign minister believed he was being clever and sought to rid his country of the American embargoes, which would go a long way to easing the tension between the two capitals. However, whether this would have derailed the military's plan for war is only a guess. War fever was by now strong among factions of the army and navy. And yet, during the same time as the chief of the combined fleet, Yamamoto, still worked out the kinks of his Operation Z, he was still vocalizing his desire not to fight the Americans. Yes, if this plan worked, Japan would have gained a year, maybe two, to run wild in Southeast Asia. But in the end, his country would lose. So why go down that road? Yamamoto's two parallel opinions, known locally as Hone to Tateme, or True Voice and Facade, was common enough amongst politicians worldwide, but certainly so in Japanese culture. Another man torn in two, as many of the Japanese military were at this point, was Foreign Minister Matsuoka. Through him, Japan had treaties with Germany and Soviet Russia, which should have left Japan free to conquer Asia, but now those two were in a fight to the death, which would probably push Moscow closer to Washington and London. And those two were already leading a Western gang who sought to curtail Japan's expansion. But before Matsuoka could find a way out of his trap, he found himself out of the government. Konoye, still in self-exile, dissolved his cabinet, then formed a new one, one without Matsuoka. Still, the military insisted that the pact with the fascists had to stay in place, and their decision made about the war with America would be unchanged. The rest of October saw everyone, that is to say, everyone that mattered, vacillate about war with the United States. This only became more so when Secretary Hull told Nomura to tell Kanoye that any meeting with the president had to be after the Japanese pulled out of China and French Indochina. Still, several top naval commanders said they were against fighting the U.S., but were also not convinced that Yamamoto's Plan Z would work. Admiral Nagano, who had been saying war should be avoided, suddenly, or supposedly, changed his mind on October 4th by stating publicly, it is no longer time for discussion. We should set a timetable for war right away. Even General Tojo added his conflicting thoughts to the fray. When Kanoye asked him to consider at least pretending to pull out of China to appease the Americans, the razor flatly refused. But then he said, We've lost 200,000 souls in the China incident. I cannot give it all up just like that. And yet, if we do go to war with the United States, we will lose tens of thousands more. I am thinking about withdrawing troops, but I just cannot decide. This uncertainty spread to the mid-level officers, which at times almost led to fistfights between the Army and Navy officers. The Navy believed that the Army was forcing them into a war against the West because that was easier 
than admitting they had failed in China. Meanwhile, Captain Minoru Genda was working out Operation Z's next obstacle. How was the first air fleet supposed to reach its attack point north of Oahu without being seen and with enough fuel for a two-way trip? If they went by southern route, the water there would be relatively calm, and they would be near Japanese military bases, should assistance be needed. But Genda knew that Admiral Kimmel trained in the south, so that was out. As for a more central or direct route before turning north, that would have them going too close to Midway. No contact with American vessels was guaranteed, which left a northerly route. But how far north? Genda decided that a thousand miles north of Oahu, along the 42-degree latitude, should suffice. That was far above the merchant ships from the United States, Russia, and Canada to avoid notice. Besides, the Japanese had been informed by their spies that Kimmel, regardless of how many times this was pointed out to him, did not allocate enough patrol craft to the north, for it was the obvious choice if the Japanese came at Pearl. But there still existed the two problems of refueling at sea and obtaining enough winter wear for those who would participate. After all, Operation Number 1, the attack of Southeast Asia, was what everyone not in the know was expecting. How could Genda order that much winter supplies and not give away their plans? As usual, he put those who dealt with this problem the most on the case. Here it turned out to be tanker captains. Normally, the tanker would sail in front of the vessel and draw out their lines. The ships behind them would bring them on board and begin the process. And this was fine for the smaller ships, like destroyers and cruisers. But as the carriers and larger battleships were not nearly as maneuverable, it was deemed best to have the tankers sail behind them. Practice was needed, but the system was quickly established. An additional safety measure was added by having the carriers, the most fuel-hungry of the vessels, carry as many extra fuel drums as possible on board. As for the winter clothes and supplies needed, Operation Z's supply officer, Shimizu, simply ordered all types of supplies, letting it slip that if war came, who knows where the military might have to dash off to. The last of Yamamoto's hurdles were being cleared. As mentioned, everyone outside of Yamamoto's circle still believed that Operation Number 1, the invasion of Southeast Asia, would be carried out soon. So the army conducted tabletop maneuvers during the first five days of October. Then the Navy held their tabletop exercises from October the 9th to the 11th. This was done aboard Yamamoto's flagship, Nagato. October 13th was spent solely discussing Operation Z. The end result of that conversation was that Operation Z had to be carried out before the Southeast could be attacked. This would keep the Americans busy and away from Japan's expanding empire. And Yamamoto was forthright in his opinion of his own plan. It would be best not 
to go to war with America, but the decision was not his to make, and the die was cast. Operation Z was simply the best of several bad choices. But now that the decision was made, and it was, with Yamamoto saying, so long as I am commander-in-chief of the combined fleet, Pearl Harbor will be attacked. I ask you to give me your fullest support. Return to your stations and work hard for the success of Japan's war plan. Good luck.